else. All right, thank you, brother, again. All right. I'm saying in Hebrews 9, we come to the heart of this letter, which is about the atonement of Christ. And in fact, as our author will argue, we're not there yet, that this was really the purpose for his incarnation. He didn't come into the world to be a great teacher, although he was a great teacher. He didn't come into the world to work miracles, although he did work miracles. And so we need to recognize all of that. He came ultimately to give his life. And Hebrews has gone through that in length, hasn't it? And it will continue to uh, be prepared for that. It will continue to because it's the heart of what we believe. It's the heart of who we are as a people that we recognize that Christ came into this world and went to Calvary's cross. And as the author of Hebrews has pointed out, oftentimes we don't frame this correctly. We say that Jesus Christ died on the cross as an atonement for our sins. That's true. And for speaking in a way like Paul does, paraphrasing, that's good. But if Christ died on the cross, was buried, and did not rise again, we have no hope. Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15, that it requires both his death and his resurrection. But even that isn't the end. Because he's making this point as we read through this ninth chapter of Hebrews, the author is making the point inspired by the Holy Spirit that that isn't yet the end of the story. Because as you know, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there was a procedure the high priest had to go through. And what was it? He had to give a sacrifice for his own sins and then a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But it didn't end at the altar, did it? He had to carry that blood into the holiest place of all, the Holy of Holies, the inner tabernacle within the tabernacle, or the inner chamber within the temple, and he had to apply that blood to the mercy seat. If he made the sacrifice at the altar and then walked away, Yom Kippur's picture was not complete. And Arthur says, oftentimes we err because we say Christ died on the cross, and that's the end of the story. And the Bible says, no, he had to rise again. To have indestructible life, the author of Hebrews is going to make this argument coming very soon, he could not be like Adam. He could not be like Levi in a sense of being a high priest who was destructible. He had to have indestructible life. And then he had to go into the heavenly tabernacle and apply the blood of his sacrifice there. Now we're going to see this argument over the next chapter and a half, but it's there. Yom Kippur was given as a pattern, he says. We saw last week he uses the word uh, parabole, right? It's a parable, he says. It's a parable to us that the Holy Spirit gave us Yom Kippur as a lesson, not only what was needed at that time, but pointing to what Christ must accomplish. And so Christ enters the heavenly tabernacle. We're going to come to this. And he there is declared priest by God. And there he serves as a perfect high priest. Now remember, and we, it's hard to cover the entire book of Hebrews in a Sunday, isn't it? But all this, if you go back to our first chapter studies a long time ago, it talked about that he became greater than the angels, having been given a name greater than they. And we talked about what that meant. That's hard to think, isn't it? How did Jesus become greater than the angels? He was eternally greater than the angels. But if you remember, the author of Hebrews is speaking of the incarnate Messiah, that the Messiah was made lower than the angels for a time and then crowned with glory and made greater than the angels in this office of son. And he says, he's been given a more excellent name than they. What is that name? Well, the very next line tells you, for which of the angels did he call son? None. 
Only this one is his son. Only this one is the priest who is also king, gloriously reigning forevermore, making intercession on behalf of his people. Only Jesus fulfills this. He fulfilled it in the way that Hebrews is telling us. And some people say, well, all that is just kind of allegorical or, or meant to be taken, not literally. Well, you're actually reversing what the author of Hebrews says. He says the parable was what existed on earth and pointed to a reality beyond itself. The earthly tabernacle was made according to a pattern of a heavenly tabernacle. That means the earthly tabernacle is the parable, not the heavenly one. The blood going into the inner sanctum of the temple or the tabernacle was the parable. It was what pointed to something greater than itself. The greater reality is what Christ has accomplished. The death of the goat for the sins of the people was the parable that pointed to the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross. All these things need to be recognized and and worked through. And the author of Hebrews is going to work through them both in this chapter and the next chapter. So if this is a little bit much right now, just sit tight over the next few weeks, and I think it will be more clear to you what he's arguing. But we need to see this because it is incredibly important. All of this, the author says, is a tupos, a type. It's a type of something greater than itself, just as the temple was, just as the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur was. All these things pointed to something greater than themselves, even to Christ, the Son of God, our Messianic High Priest, uh, the Melchizedekian High Priest. And so we need to see all of this. So as we get ready to look at our text today, I want us to look at Yom Kippur, the great Day of Atonement, the highest holiest day on the Jewish calendar, and how Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of it. To do that, I want us to read uh, the text again. Ben read 6 through 15, but I want to start back at verse 1 for a moment because I want to see what we looked at last week. And how he talks about all the temple uh, furniture and appointments being purposeful and, in, and pointing to Christ. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the temple which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been Thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions into the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the, in, the eternal inheritance. Praise God. There is so much here. So pray for me as we uh, try to make it through this text today as best we can. But I want us to look at three points by way of organizing this text. First of all, the glories of Yom Kippur. Second of all, the imperfections of Yom Kippur. And third, the glories of our priest. So beginning first with the glories of Yom Kippur, uh, we want to realize that uh, as we think about this extended picture of the sacrificial uh, system, there was much going on in the temple. This is what's pointed to as the author talks about uh, the, the first tabernacle and then the inner tabernacle, the holiest place. So we think of the holy place and the holiest place, right? Or the holy place and the holy of holies is often how it's referred to. There are ministrations going on in both. And the author has laid that out. He says, priests enter the holy place day after day, making the daily, uh, fulfilling the daily operations of the sacrificial system. And there were daily operations, weren't there? There were peace offerings and all these different offerings that you could have. But there is one particular day when that inner sanctum, that inner part, that holiest place becomes foremost in the thoughts of the people of Israel. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's literally what it means, Day of Atonement. On that day, things were a little bit different. Because on that day, there was a sacrifice made for all the people, for all the people. And we need to think about this for a moment because it accomplishes something uh, that is amazing. But it isn't perfect. It's ordained by God, but God did not intend it to be perfect. He says that there is a weakness to the things of the Old Covenant. He says that because the Old Covenant could make nothing perfect. And it was God's intention always to make a people complete in Christ. So the Old Testament had a preparatory importance, if you will, but it was not the end. It was the shadow that pointed to the substance of what we have in Christ. And so please keep that in mind as we look at this. Now, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the highest, holiest day of the year for Israel. That we know. It's an important day. It stays an important day for Jews today, right? Um, if, if you know a person who's Jewish or, or you've ever lived in an area where there were many Jews, Yom Kippur was an important day. It still is. It's a day in which you don't work, right? Jewish businesses shut down on Yom Kippur. They do not work. It's a day of prayer and repentance, it's a day today where they go to their local temple and they worship together. There are songs and prayers and a liturgy that you go through. And in fact, I was telling our Sunday school class this morning that I saw a video on YouTube where they were teaching about Yom Kippur. And this person was talking about how uh, we go to temple and we repent of our sins and we ask forgiveness and God forgives us. And that's a modern understanding of Yom Kippur, but it is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say we repent on Yom Kippur and God just simply says all's good. No, at the heart of Yom Kippur is sacrifice. There must be an atonement made for the sins of the people. Now we can understand why that's not part of the celebration today because there is no temple to sacrifice these animals. But God did not just forgive and overlook sin. Right? That is the entire message of the Bible. 
God is himself holy and righteous and cannot just overlook sin. Sin must have a just dessert, if you will. And so Yom Kippur addresses that. In fact, it addresses a very important question for the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. How can God abide among us? We have a tabernacle. We have a holy place and a most holy place. And God dwells, if you will, there in that holiest place, or at least comes and meets there with the high priest on that day of Yom Kippur. How can this be? Because we know that God cannot have any part with unholiness, and yet the people are unholy. The people are sinners. This presents a real problem. How can God dwell amongst his people? How can the tabernacle be a place where God can dwell? Because the Bible tells us something about sin. It's not just mistakes. It's not even just action. Right? There is a force to sin. John Owen said, sin is a force. It not only is wrong, right? it's not only something that where error has taken place, sometimes willful error, but it has a contaminating factor. Sin makes people and things unclean. Right? If sin comes into contact with you, you're not really supposed to go into the temple to worship, into the courts, right? There were ritual cleansings for people. There were offerings to be made. So then if a people are a people who are of unclean lips, as Isaiah said, how can God dwell among them? Well, God tells us there are many things given in that sacrificial system which address this, but particularly Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, this day where God atones, if you will, and that word, Kippur, which it means in Hebrew basically to cover. In fact, it comes from a root word which means to cover with pitch. Okay, so to kind of Put something over it that, that hides it, takes it away. And that's what Yom Kippur is all about. How do you address the sins of a people? How do you cleanse, if you will, a people and a land? Because the Bible also says that the land becomes defiled by sin. This is an important question. God gives the answer in Yom Kippur. So how does this day work? How does Kippur, Yom Kippur work? How does this day of atonement work? Well, on this day, God purges the stain of sin from his people and from their land, and even from the tabernacle itself, which we'll read here in a moment and see that. So how does this happen? Well, the high priest is important in it, right? The one man appointed to go into that holy place, the holiest place, he's important. But we'd ask again, how is this possible? He himself is a sinner. And the answer is he must first atone for his own sins. Was this not the argument of why Christ as the Melchizedekian high priest is greater than the high priest of the order of Levi? Because the order of Levi, the high priest, had to first offer for his own sins before offering for ours. Our high priest had to do no no such thing, right? Because he is sinless. But on that day of atonement, what are the kind of key strokes, the key points to remember? Well, if you want to read more about it, you can turn back to Leviticus chapter 16 and read about it. Read all the detail of what was done. But the key points are this. The high priest sacrificed first a bull or a bullock for his own sins and for the cleansing of his own household. So the very first thing he had to do was go and slaughter a bull that his sins would be atoned for. And even that atonement is not uh, not fulfilled in the moment of the slaughter, but of applying the blood in the holiest place. So that's what he did first. He cleansed himself and his household. I think that refers to his family and the place he dwells. And then 
he sacrifices, well, he takes that in, goes to the incense altar, takes incense into the uh, holiest place, and puts the blood upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. This atones fully now for his sins. It covers them. They're dealt with. Then he goes back out. And already, even before that, two goats were brought to him. And these goats were presented to him. And he cast lots. And one lot had a, a tablet that said, The Lord's. And the other said, Scapegoat. And he cast lots for these two goats. And one goat, therefore, fell to the lot of the Lord. And one fell to the lot of the scapegoat. And the one that fell to the lot of the Lord was then taken to the altar and sacrificed for the sins of the people of Israel. It's a, a brutal thing to think about, isn't it? It's not pleasant to us. It's not something we're used to doing, especially in a culture where we have less and less people who grow up on farms, right, where you may have had to slaughter animals. It's not as familiar to us. It's a little bit of a put-off, right? Arthur Pink, remember reading this years ago, said it's intended to be. The entire pointing of, of shedding blood is to make you realize the consequence of sin. Amen. So as the animal life is required of it, in place of yours, you recognize the consequences of sin, that the wages of sin is death. That's the whole point. And so he slaughters the, the goat, he carries the blood into the holiest place and applies it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, again, now making intercession, if you will, and atoning for the sins of the people. And as we read, in just a moment we'll turn to Leviticus 16, We'll see he also in this process cleanses the holiest place, then he cleanses the tabernacle, and then he goes out and cleanses the altar, and that cleansing spreads out now from the holiest place to the land of Israel. Yet we're still not done, are we? He then takes the scapegoat. It's brought to him. He places its head, hand, his hands upon its head, and he confesses the sins of Israel upon this scapegoat who then becomes the bearer of all the sins of Israel. And then a trusted person, a suitable person, I believe is how Leviticus says it, takes that goat and takes it outside into the wilderness where it is set free, bearing the sins of the people, taking them out of the land, if you will. You might think about that psalm, taking the sin as far as the east is from the west in a sense. Taking it away from the people and we're still not done. Because then the high priest comes and takes the body of the bull and the body of the goat that was sacrificed to sin offerings and they take them outside the camp and they burn them as burnt offerings. My friends, get familiar with this because we're going to be dealing with like five chapters where the author of Hebrews is making reference to these things. This is the heart of his argument. When he says Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp, he's making a reference just like that burnt offering. Right, there are many things here that we need to recognize as we go through this text, but all this is Yom Kippur, and it's glorious. Why? Because if it doesn't happen, God doesn't reside with his people. If it doesn't happen, his people don't remain in the land of promise. This is all there in the text for us to see. It's important for us to see, and we need to recognize this. So all of this is, is what he's getting to right here as we look at this. As we turn to Leviticus chapter 16, this cleansing aspect, because we need to recognize uh, the importance of this. And by the way, let me say this. Uh, when people uh, say, we've got to be careful what we say about the old covenant law and how it functioned. 
Uh, many people say, well, Israel was redeemed or justified by the sacrificial system. That is not true. Right? The Bible makes that clear. All people have been saved, have been saved in the exact same way, and that is by faith in the coming Messiah, in Christ. Makes that point from Abraham, who before the law, it makes that point throughout the giving of the law, the just shall live by faith. This is the argument of Paul in Romans and Galatians. But the Old Testament sacrificial system did have a purpose. All right, It did do something, and we're going to look at that today. But until that time, I want you to see it is established here that it had a cleansing function for the people. But there was a limit to how it cleansed the people of Israel. So if you will, look at verse 16. So he, this is the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place. For the holy place, not just the people, not just himself, but the holy place, the tabernacle. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, that's that defiling nature of sin and humanity that we defile even the tabernacle. And then he goes on to say, and because of their transgressions for all their sins, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place. Do you notice that? The ministrations of the tabernacle stopped except for what the high priest was doing on Yom Kippur. Everyone else had to go out. And he says here, There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and, of the, uh, and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. You see, it's not just atoning for their sins. It's cleansing from the effects of sin. You need to understand this. This in the picture of sacrifice in the Old Testament is not just dealing with our wrongdoings, but dealing with the consequences of wrongdoing, which is uncleanness before God. And this is really important to understand fully what Jesus did. So if you understand that and understand these bodies were taken out and burned and Yom Kippur ended and, and in that way it was declared that things were cleansed and God could remain amongst his people and his people remain in the land. This is ultimately what this was about. And you'll see that because I want us now to begin to turn to the imperfections of Yom Kippur. Because maybe as a, a, a Jewish uh, person in the Old Testament, you would say Yom Kippur is perfect. It does everything we need. But the author of Hebrews says if you were thinking about it, you would know it didn't. You'd know it didn't. How, what are some of the arguments he's made? Well, the sacrifices go on and on without end. Goat after goat, bull after bull sacrificed. How many bulls and goats were sacrificed through so many generations? We don't know. But it was never enough. It never dealt with it. It never finalized the problem. And the author of Hebrews says this is important to recognize. The Old Testament system could perfect nothing. But God's work, the thing set out before time began, was to perfect a people. And so therefore, it isn't sufficient. God never intended it to be sufficient. It was always recognized that it pointed to something. It was given, what does Paul say, more or less as a custodian. Right? It was given, he also argues in Galatians, right, that the law given later can't uh, supersede the promise given earlier to Abraham. In other words, it was given for a temporal purpose. And we see that. That's what the author is arguing. 
in the totality of all that we've been looking at. So the high priest has to cleanse himself before he can enter. That shows an imperfection in the system, doesn't it? That the high priest is not himself holy, but must be atoned for to be in a standing with God. And it's not a just standing, right, in terms of like justification, because he has to do it again next year and the next year. It never avails justification. And the purpose of that is, the reason for that is because God never intended it to. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. What does Paul mean? The law was never intended to justify anyone. It was meant to have a temporal purpose in the land that God could dwell amongst his people and his people could dwell in the land. That's its purpose. And to point to Christ who would be the one through whom we would be justified by faith. So I said a couple of weeks ago, if, you're, if anybody's struggling with this, John Owen said it well. He said, while people were saved in the days of the old covenant, no one was soteriologically saved by or through the old covenant. They've always been saved by the new covenant in Christ. That's, again, Paul's entire purpose in Romans, to say the law did not justify. The law pointed to the one who would justify. The law was given to a people for a purpose, but what is the end of the law, he says? Christ Jesus. The telos, the aim of the law, the purpose of the law is Christ. The law pointed to Christ. And so understand that, because this is what the author is going to go directly into. We can also see the weak nature of the Levitical system in general and Yom Kippur in particular. And what can you say of the bulls and the goats? They weren't perfect. They weren't spotless. They really, in some way, you might even be led to say, how can a bull atone for the priest? How can a goat atone for all of us? The author Hebrew says that's the question you really ought to be asking. And the answer is they really couldn't in a sense. They could do this temporal cleansing, but they could never soteriologically save us. That's just a big word for salvation. They couldn't save us, right? They were not able to save, but they pointed to one who would be able to save because he is spotless. He is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist declared. It's what Paul declares when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb. In him and his blood, death passes by. So again, all of this is given to us by way of image, but it's based on the insufficiency, if you will, of the old covenant to atone. There's other weaknesses given to us in our text today. If you just begin to look, let me turn back. I'm still in Leviticus, sorry. If you turn back to Hebrews, look at it. As he talks about the ministrations of the tabernacle, he says that, In verse 7, into that second part, the high priest went alone. Why does that speak of insufficiency? Because the entire nature of the old covenant and the nature of the political system, we've said this at least for like five chapters, is keep away. Keep away from God. The closer you get to God, the fewer people can go. Right? When he dwells on the mountain, the elders can come close. Moses can go up. But if you're just a a citizen of Israel, you're not allowed to even step upon the mountain. What about in that temple? Into the court, some can come. Into the uh, tabernacle, the Levite priest can come. But into that holy of holies, only one can come. And even then, only one day a year. But in Hebrews, with what Christ has accomplished, 
That weakness is removed. The author of Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. He's speaking to all believers. Come boldly into the presence of God. Come boldly into that place. That temple's veil has been rent in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. In him as our king and high priest and sacrifice now, all his people can draw near. That is a major change. It shows the weakness, if you will, of the old covenant system. But notice even that yearly, yearly mention of once a year reminds us that even that high priest, though favored with an exalted position, could not come whenever he wanted. In fact, if you turn back to Leviticus 16, God says to Moses, tell Aaron that he may not come anytime he chooses, but tell him he can come when I declare to him he can come once a year. So even Aaron, chosen by God to be this representative of the people, he could not just go before the Ark of the Covenant anytime he wanted. He could not just go into that inner sanctum whatever he wanted, but only when God told him he could. Again, what does this point to? A people who are held away. A people who are held away, but in Christ we draw near. So again, we see this weakness. And if we were to continue forward from there, you'll see further things. Look at verse 9. It was symbolic, meaning this earthly system and earthly tabernacle were symbolic for the present time. Notice, in the present time, there was this parable. But in the fullness of time, there'll be something better. Christ will come as the one who does better things, and we'll see that. But notice what else he says. In in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience see what the author's telling you it did it could not atone the conscience it could not cleanse the conscience there were sins that were committed that it might atone for them in terms of physical standing in the land and before god to be able to participate in the presence of the people of god in the religious system of israel but your conscience was not cleansed there was a limit to what the old covenant could do and in fact you see that elsewhere here because look at verse 7 it says he offered himself for himself this sacrifice as the high priest offered for himself and for the people's sins but do you notice there's a qualification put on it committed in ignorance if you willfully sin these sacrifices did not cover your sin that's frightening isn't it that meant as you went through the year and you thought about your standing in the land and before god If you knew you'd willfully sin, those sacrifices did not atone or cover those things. And since most people at some point in their life have willfully sinned, that's a problem. A weakness in the old covenant system, right? So again, we need to recognize the limits he was saying of what could happen on that day of atonement for the people of God. There were limits. It cleansed in a sense externally, not internally. And by the way, we can see that. Again and again, look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats, that's a reference to Yom Kippur, right? And the ashes of a heifer, that's not a reference to Yom Kippur. What's that a reference to? The red heifer that was burnt as a burnt offering. And if you had sinned or became unclean, they would take and mix those ashes with water and they would sprinkle them upon you, which would cleanse you of your iniquity. He says, That's what the Old Testament system gave you. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of what? 
the flesh. Do you see what the Bible says? You're cleansed externally by this old system, right? You're not made clean before God. You're not made perfectly holy before God. There is some things that system did not do that can only be done in the perfectly availing sacrifice of Christ. And by the way, we could go on and on pointing out these things. There are a number of other places where it it says just this sort of thing. But I want you to see, and by the way, look at verse 10. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances. That which is of flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. This is a fleshly ordinance for a fleshly problem. Now, this is important to recognize. This is why you could not be justified under the old covenant sacrifices. Your justification, if it came at all that way, would be in looking at those sacrifices and believing the promise of a Messiah who would come, who would deliver us from our sin by his sacrifice, which they pointed to. But that would be faith in Christ. This is what it means when Abraham believed the promise of God and he was accounted righteous before God. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Right? What did he mean? He rejoiced in the promise of the seed that would come who would be that sacrifice that would atone for the people and be effectual. Now, I want to say this. I quote 2 Corinthians chapter 3 all the time. I know it, but uh, you need to learn that chapter well because this is Paul's argument. Paul takes a, a debate in the church at Corinth on whether or not he has proper credentials, whether or not as a letter of recommendation for others. He says, after I've been here and ministered to you and led many of you to Christ, do I need a letter of commendation from someone else that you know Uh, that I'm dependable? He said, you are my letter of commendation. Do you understand what what he's saying there? Can you imagine somebody goes, you know, Pastor Rick, we realized that when we hired you all those years ago, we didn't do letters of recommendation. So can you give us some references that we can go back and talk to to make sure you're qualified and, and all that? I'm like, I've been here now for like 20 years. Aren't you all the people who would commend me or not? Aren't you the people who best know me? My record now speaks for itself, right? That's what he's saying. Aren't you my letter of recommendation? Then he says this, written on flesh, right? Written on flesh, heart, not tablets of stone. And then he goes into this discussion of the differences between the old covenant and the new. If you're not familiar with it, I know I go to it a lot. If you're not really understanding the argument, go read it and read it and pray about it until you do. Because what Paul says is the old covenant was given temporally. That means for a time. The new covenant is eternal. The old one was weak. The new one is effectual. That's the very thing that's being argued in Hebrews. The old covenant was weak and imperfect. It was never intended to be perfect. The new one is perfect. It does exactly what God intends to do with it as the old one did. The old one did exactly what God intended. He just didn't intend to justify people by it. He intended to justify people by what Christ would do. And so it's perfectly effectual. And then the last thing he says is that it is internal. The old covenant was on tablets of stone external to us. It gave us laws and commands external to us with no ability to do them. But he says the new covenant is written on our hearts. Right? The law has been taken and written on our hearts and minds, and we're given the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who is transforming us, enabling us to live out the will of God. Not perfectly, but as God wants us to, right? Moving and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit.
And so again, as you look at all this, you recognize there were imperfections in the Old Testament system, and particularly Yom Kippur. That's the entire point of Hebrews. If it had been enough, why would there be another given? This is the exact argument he makes about the Levitical priesthood. If the Levitical priesthood was enough, why would there have been promised a Messiah from another priesthood? Why would you need a Melchizedekian high priest? Why? Because the Levitical wasn't enough. Why do you need a new covenant? We've argued this. I'm just cliff noting so it gets driven in. Why do you need a new covenant? The author says because covenant is so tied with priesthood that you can't have a change in one without the change of the other. Could Christ minister under the old covenant? Could he go into the earthly holy of holies to offer the blood of the sacrifice? No, he was, a, he was not a Levite. He's of the tribe of Judah. Only Levites could enter, and only one. Christ would have been a sinner if he had entered the inner sanctum to offer there. But this didn't surprise God, didn't catch him off guard. He sees the end from the beginning. He planned all this out. He said, the earthly tabernacle is a model of the true heavenly tabernacle. There is where Christ will offer his blood. And that's exactly what he did. And we'll talk about that and how Hebrews helps us understand that in future weeks. I want us to very quickly, because I know time is short, look at these last few verses and think about the glories of our Christ. Because now he gives a contrasting language here. Right, in verse 11, but, whenever you have a but, you know that it's telling you that it contrasts with what's come before. So the high priests had their earthly system that was never perfect. It was never intended to be perfect. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. This is the difference between temporal and eschatological. This is the end times effectual availing priesthood, the eternal priesthood. Melchizedek was... As if no beginning and no end, he disappears from the text. He appears out of nowhere from the text. And the author of Hebrews says that points to Christ who is eternal. There's never a time he was not, and there will never be a time he is not. He is eternal, for he is God himself. And he says, in that way, he is the high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. He means not of the earth. The perfect tabernacle was created. It was created by God in the heavenly place. And that is where our high priest ministers. And that's what he's saying. But notice how he enters that tabernacle. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. See, that's one of the failings of the old covenant in a sense. It was never intended to be effectual because it's the blood of animals, imperfect animals. But Christ's blood is spotless and powerful. And it avails. And so, my friends, and by the way, Free Grace Broadcaster, Precious Blood, read it if you want to learn more about that. But he says, Christ's blood avails. And he entered the most holy place. Again, does he mean on earth? No. He's already established he cannot enter the most holy place on earth. He enters the heavenly tabernacle that the earthly one was a model of. When Moses built it, he said, build it after this model, this typos, this type. So he enters that place, and then look what he says, once and for all. This isn't an every year thing. Christ finished the sacrifice on the altar, if you will, that was the cross at Calvary. He applied the blood in the heavenly place, has been called the high priest of this new order, and reigns at his Father's right-hand side, making intercession for us constantly, without end. He never has to leave the most holy place, because he's not a sinner. 
He can dwell perfectly with God forevermore, having obtained eternal redemption. That's very different from what the Old Testament gave you. It gave you a physical redemption, if you will, or atonement for a year. Right? And if you knowingly sinned after that, you should offer sacrifices. These are the ones you did ignorantly and didn't even know to atone for. But here's the thing. Christ has purchased an eternal redemption. We are justified in him. There's nothing left to do. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies and purifies the flesh. How much more, if that did that, how much more shall the blood of Christ who the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Christ's blood does what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do. It cleanses you not only externally, but more importantly, internally. You are perfectly cleansed by Christ's blood. You are able to be justified before a holy and righteous God. And therefore, we can serve him. And he says, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. And by the way, a testament is based on death. So we talk about the New Testament or the New Covenant. It's the New Covenant in Christ's blood in his death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I don't have time right now to exposit that last verse. I'm already kind of over how long I wanted to preach. But listen, we'll get into that next week. But what's he saying here? He's saying Yom Kippur was great. God gave it as a blessing to the people of Israel. But if your eyes are only upon Yom Kippur, you're going to miss what it points to. It points to Jesus as the fulfillment of the true atonement of God. It's in his blood that we are truly atoned. It's in his resurrection and eternal life that he can function as our perfect high priest, sinless, availing, perfectly interceding on our behalf. And therefore, we stand no longer in Adam, but by faith we stand in him who is perfectly righteous, meaning, guess what? We stand in Christ perfectly righteous ourselves. Not by any merit of our own, but by the merits of Christ. And the author of Hebrews says, if you understand that, why would you ever want to go back to what you had before? Why would you ever want to go back to a system that only cleanses you externally, and then you've got to go through all these Systems, when they all pointed to Christ anyway, and now you have him. Why would you ever go back? Christ has given us rest for our souls. He has made us righteous before our God and Father. Therefore, rejoice and rest in that. Rejoice and be thankful.